Bibles, if you would please, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Book of Hebrews, chapter 12. And just to refresh our memory here a little bit, we're looking at verses 1 through 3. Last week we made it all the way through verse 1 together. And so today we want to look at verses 2 and 3, should the Lord allow. But let's read those together, shall we? And you have your Bible in front of you, hopefully. And if not, there's one in the pew right in front of you. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In this passage, you will recall from last week that the author of Hebrews is teaching us how to live as Christians. Remember, he spent the first 10 chapters of the book of Hebrews Basically telling you just a few things, right? Number one, Jesus is better. Better than the angels, better than Moses, better than the priests, better than Aaron, better than Joshua. He's better. He has a better sacrifice. He's a better priest. In fact, he's our great high priest. And he brings a better covenant. But the author is not going to give us some simple formula in these verses. He's going to give us some very practical and, of course, biblical counsel on how to run with endurance through the Christian life. And I don't know about you, but every time I run into a passage that says, from the Lord, this is how you should be living, my ears perk up a little bit. I want to hear that. Lord, how should I be living this Christian life? What is it that's most important to you? What should I be doing that would bring you honor and glory? What should I be doing that would fulfill my purpose for you in my life? What should I be doing that will accomplish your will, your mission for me in this world? When I run into a passage like that, I want to pay extra attention. Because that's what we have here in Hebrews chapter 12. But let's refresh our memory for a minute on a couple observations from last week's text. The first thing we saw last week is that the Christian life is compared to a race. What kind of race? Not a sprint, not a mid-distance, but a marathon. It's an endurance race for sure. And with any marathon, you're going to be going up a lot of hills, down a lot of hills, over some mountains, in through some valleys. There'll be times of rain, times of sleet, times of bad weather, times of of, uh, intense heat. But it's a marathon. Secondly, let's not forget that it's a race. 
It's not a race in comparison with each other. It's not a race in the sense that um, I need to beat somebody else there to the finish line. But the author wants us, and he uses this analogy specifically to remind us that it's not just a casual together, walking together after coffee kind of marathon, that there's some intentionality here behind it. Matter of fact, that word race for us in Hebrew is the word agonia, which is where we get the word English word agony. And the author of Hebrews, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, specifically chooses that word to remind us that it's not a short sprint, but it's rather a long, agonizing marathon, this thing called the Christian life. Now, that doesn't mean that we're to pace ourselves because it's so long, lest we strain ourselves and burn ourselves out too much serving Jesus. That's not what he's saying. No, the analogy is meant to communicate the seriousness of the run and how important it is that we understand that we're to be in it for the long haul. That we're to maintain our faith all the way through the finish line. That's the idea here that he wants to stress to us. So in verse 1, part A, or verse 1A, we run with the encouragement of victorious saints from the past. We run with encouragement. We see there that great cloud of witnesses. Who is that? Those are the heroes of the faith that we saw in chapter 11. What was it that was so special about all of them? Was it that they lived a perfect life? No. Was it that they ran it flawlessly? There were no obstacles in their way that they didn't clear seamlessly. No. It's that they endured in their faith all the way through. All the way through. These witnesses, you might have heard uh, preaching otherwise. It kind of gives you the sense that we've got this great stadium full of saints that are watching everything we do down here. But Scripture nowhere tells us that. Matter of fact, I told you last week, I have a hard time believing that. Once I'm in the presence of Jesus, no offense, I love you all, but I really won't care much of what you're doing at that point. Because I'll just be consumed with Christ and his glory and his majesty and serving him and being in his presence forever and ever. I love you dearly, but I won't be in that stadium. Their lives testify to us that this race of faith can be ran and ran well all the way to the finish line. But how do we prepare to run this marathon? Well, verse 1 B, point two last week, was we run by shedding all that would encumber us, and there should have been another blank there, and enslave us. Anything that would encumber, remember that word encumber means weight, anything that would slow us down. And you can have encumbrances in your life that are not necessarily bad in and of themselves. Having a TV is not a sin. But if it slows you down, if it weighs you down in your walk with Christ, it can become an encumbrance in your walk. That's just an example. So we're to run, we're to shed those encumbrances, and we're to get rid of anything that would enslave us. There he's specifically talking about sin. That would enslave us and, again, perhaps detour us from either finishing the race or at least finishing the race well. 
And then verse 1c, we run with endurance to finish the race God has set before us. And that's the main verb in verse 1, the author's primary exhortation here. Let us keep running by means of endurance the race that you have chosen for yourself. Is that what your translation says? That's not what mine says. The race that you choose to run. No, mine doesn't say that either. Hopefully your Bible says the race that has been set before us, the race that is set before us, and notice two things. First of all, who is it that sets the course for your marathon? God is the one. He's the one who sets the course. If you're running a marathon, you can't make up your own course. And if you stray from the course, last week I told you you'd be disqualified. And praise God for some discerning elders who came to me and said, what do you mean by that, Pastor? Which I love. I love that. Here's what I meant. Not disqualified in the sense that I lose my salvation. Not disqualified in that sense. But disqualified in the sense that I'm not running the race the Lord has chosen for me. Instead, I'm running my own course. Instead of his will for me, and thus I will not accomplish the goal of running the race in a way that accomplishes his will for my life and brings him glory. That's what I mean by disqualified. God is the sovereign one who sets the course for each of us, just as he set the course for the cross of Jesus. Secondly, we must run with endurance. That word endurance means it, it speaks of a steady determination to keep going. It means continuing, even when those are times when you want to slow down or just give up. Running with endurance requires a, a mindset that this is not a sprint. You're just not going to run this for a little while, then whew, you're in. Everything's smooth sailing from there. Or that there won't be any obstacles in your path. Or you won't have any mountains that you'll have to climb. There won't be any deep, dark times of valley where you just wonder if you're ever going to get out of this. That's not what that means. It's a marathon. It's an agonia. It's an agonizing marathon. How is that? Very encouraging, isn't it? Why did the writer of Hebrews include this in there? Because he wants you to have the mindset that this thing that you're living called the Christian life, it requires you to have a mindset that you're in it for the long haul. And then no matter what obstacles come your way, you will cling to your faith to finish and finish well. That's why he's telling you. This is not to discourage you. Christian Life is a lifelong, grueling race. It's got some long hills to climb, some swampy marshes you have to plod through. And we know where the, the starting line is, That for that is when we first believed in Christ. But only God knows where the finish line is for you and for me. God has determined that. God has determined what obstacles will come in your life as well. There will be trials. In your life, there will be hardships in your life, but we 
must persevere, trusting our Lord to guide us all the way to the finish line. None of us know the length of the course, but God knows what it will be for each of us. And that's our calling, brothers and sisters. That's it. You're a believer here today. Your calling is to run the race with endurance that God has set before you. That's your calling. To start, and you start the moment you believed in Christ, trusted Christ as your Savior, and to cling to that faith and trust in God all the way through the finish line. That's your calling. That's my calling. You say, well, that's great, Pastor. Thank you. I understand this is a marathon. I understand it's possible to run with endurance. I understand it's possible to finish well because I have this great cloud of witnesses who have done it before me. And I know I need to shed some things in my life that are slowing me down. I got to get rid of the things that are ensnaring me, enslaving me. And I also know that God is the one that determines the course for my life, not me. And yet I am called to run that race all the way to the finish line. But how? How can I ensure when there seems to be no relief in sight for my suffering? I just can't get over the mountain. I just can't get through this valley. How can I press on when it seems like every day is a battle to endure in my faith? And then I look around, and I think, well, that, that believer doesn't have a lot of trials in their life. Everything seems to be going okay for them. Why, why me, Lord? Why do I have this obstacle? Well, my friends, that's exactly what we want to look at this morning in verses 2 to 3 of Hebrews chapter 12. Before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless our time together in his holy word. Heavenly Father, thank you, dear Lord, again, for the challenge from your word. Lord, only your word can pierce us, pierce us to the division of bone and marrow, Lord, discerning our thoughts and the intentions of our heart. Only your word could do that. Only your word is alive and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. And, Lord, there are times in our life, Lord, where your word is such an encouragement to us. And there are times in our lives, Lord, where it pierces us and reminds us of what we are called to do. Lord, you never told us it would be easy. You never told us that there would be no obstacles, no trials. Matter of fact, your word has told us just the opposite. But you don't just leave us hanging there with that. You have given us all kinds of provision so that we may finish well. So, Lord, open up this text to us today, Lord. Open our eyes. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Let me listen well. May we be a good Berean here today. And may we be not only hearers of the word, but doers of the word, applying this to our own lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. 
So let's look at verse 2, shall we again? The first part here. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. So point number one in your notes, verse 2a, we run with endurance when we focus on Jesus himself. We run with endurance when we focus on Jesus himself. Notice right off the bat, we have that phrase, fixing our eyes on Jesus. That word fixing is an interesting word, a foro. It means to turn your eyes away. Now, doesn't that seem strange? It says fixing your eyes on Jesus, but the Greek word means turning your eyes away. But the idea is not just turning your, it's not turning your eyes away from Jesus. It's turning your eyes away from anything that would distract you from Jesus. He's saying, turn away from anything that would distract you from focusing on Christ and Christ alone. The word also means to turn one's mind to a certain thing. So you look away from one thing and you turn to another. What is that one thing we are to turn to? Well, our text tells us, doesn't it? Jesus. My friends, that is the Christian life, isn't it? The moment we divert our attention from Jesus and we turn then to anything else, we are in danger of tripping up. Can't help but think of Peter, right, when he went out onto the water with Jesus and Jesus, when he was looking intently at Jesus, the moment he took his eyes off of Christ, what happened? He started to sink. That's what the author here is saying. Focus on Christ and his life and who he is and what he's done. from a booklet called Bits and Pieces is an interesting story about Florence Chadwick. She's the first woman to swim the English Channel in both directions. And on the 4th of July, 1951, she attempted to swim from Catalina Island to the California coast. And the challenge was not so much the distance, but the bone-chilling waters of the Pacific. To complicate matters, there was a dense fog that laid over the entire area, making it impossible for her to see the land. After about 15 hours in that bone-chilling water, and within a half a mile of her goal, she gave up. Later, she told a reporter, Look, I'm not excusing myself, but if I could have seen the land, I could have made it. Not long afterwards, she attempted to swim again. And once more, there was a misty fog that obscured the coastline, and she couldn't see the shore again. But this time, she made it because she kept reminding herself that the land was there. It was there. She couldn't see it, but she knew it was there. And with that confidence, she bravely swam on and achieved her goal. And as a matter of fact, she broke the men's record by two hours. The key was fixing her eyes on the goal. But in her case, it was the shoreline. But for us, it's the anchor of our soul that we are to keep our eyes firmly fixed on. And the anchor of our soul is the Lord Jesus Christ. Why Jesus? Our text tells us he's the author and perfecter of our faith. What does that mean? 
The word author is a translation of two words. The Greek word is archegon. The word is made up of ago, which means to lead, and arche, which means first, to lead or to be first. So the author, the author means the chief leader or one that takes the lead in anything or one who finishes the example. In our passage, it describes Jesus as the one who's the preeminent in our faith. He is the preeminence of his father, who surpasses the examples, incidentally, of all of those faith examples in Hebrews chapter 11. Christ is the preeminent one. That word faith, incidentally, has the article before it in the Greek text. So it means the faith. You may not have it translated that in your Bibles, but some of you do. He's the author and perfecter of the faith. It is the faith of which this writer is speaking that exhibited in the examples of chapter 11 and in the Lord Jesus. Christ is the archegon, the chief leader of his faith. And he furnished the perfect development, the supreme example of faith. He's the author of the faith. But notice also he's the perfecter. That word tell you means to carry through completely or to finish or to make complete or to make perfect. He is the finisher or the one that brings completion to the faith. So not only is he the prime example, the perfect example of the faith, he is the one who brought our faith to completion. He's the supreme example of that. And think about his life. His entire life was the very embodiment of trust in God. He perfected living by faith. He lived in total dependence upon the Father. Not my will, Father, but yours. It was his absolute faith in God that enabled him to go through the mocking and the, and the crucifixion and the rejection and the desertion and left him perfect in his faith. Our Lord, in his incarnation and ministry here on earth, became the perfect or complete example of a life of faith. He's not only the supreme example of the faith, he's also the one who brought the faith to its full completion. How did he do that? Through faith. Isn't that interesting? Are you getting the sense that we need faith to run this race with endurance? Are you getting that? That we must fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author, the perfect example, the first, the leader, and the one who completed our faith, the perfect example of how to live your life by faith. That means we must deliberately lift our eyes from other distracting things and focus on Jesus. You want to finish this race well, my friends. You want to make it all the way to the finish line. You're going to have to put away anything that will distract you from Christ. Living for Christ, serving Christ, ministering with Christ in mind, exalting Christ. Anything other than that is an encumbrance to you. It is a weight for you. You know, our last dog, Zach, was a great dog. 
very obedient. And every once in a while when I noticed that Zach would start to wane in his obedience, I'd take a piece of cheese and I'd put it right on the top of his nose. But as I would place the cheese on his nose, I would say, no. Now, Zach loved cheese. I mean, he really loved cheese. How strong do you think the desire was for Zach to flip that cheese up in the air and just snap that up like that? Pretty strong? Well, if you know Zach, you know that's exactly what he would do. But he was faced with a difficult decision, wasn't he? To obey or disobey his master's command. Can I tell you that Zach never took the cheese before I gave the command for okay? 17 years, never. Never did it. How did he do it? He never looked at the cheese. He always stared at me the entire time. Even if I started to walk away in a different direction, his head would hold still, but his eyes just firmly focused on me. It's almost as if Zach, the dog, understood that if he took his eyes off his master, the temptation would have been too much. So he would look steadily at my face until I said it was okay. But there's a, there's a lesson in there for us too, isn't there? Always keep your eyes on the master. Always keep your eyes. And that's good advice, right? Because God, of course, will never attempt us to do wrong, right? He'll never tempt us. James 1.13, we do encounter many temptations, though, and if we keep our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus, we'll be able to overcome them. And when confronted by enticements that could easily ensnare us or weigh us down, we need to look to Christ to follow his direction. Seeing him and hearing him as we is revealed as we read the scriptures will give us the discernment to know what's right and the desire and the strength to obey him. Keep your eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus. He will give you victory all the way to the finish line. Point number two in verse uh, 2b and c here of point two, we run with endurance when we focus on Jesus' joy. When we focus on Jesus' joy. What was it that allowed Jesus to endure the shame of the cross? It was that he had fixed his eyes upon what? The joy set before him. Do you see that? See that in your text? The joy set before him. He did the very thing that we're called to do. We're called to fix our eyes. And he's also called to fix his eyes, wasn't he? He provided that example for us. The writer here doesn't consider it necessary to kind of expand on this theme of joy, but he attaches some importance to the fact that it was set before Christ, which suggests that it took precedence over everything else that he did. What would that joy be? Well, there was certainly the joy from Hebrews 2.10 of bringing many sons to glory. Through the incarnation, his ministry on the cross. But also the greatest joy was that of glorifying the Father by completing the work that the Father had given him to do. And Jesus lived to please and glorify his Father in heaven. And when Jesus cried from the cross, it is finished. It wasn't a cry of defeat or frustration, my friends. 
It was a cry of victory in accomplishing what the Father had set before him to do. Crossing the finish line, it was done. It is finished. He had accomplished the the mission. He had finished the course. And when Jesus returned to heaven, triumphant over Satan and sin and death and hell, the angels rejoiced. The marriage supper of the Lamb will be a time for us to rejoice and be glad and to give the glory to him. And keeping that glorious joy in view, my friends, of accomplishing what God has set before you, of accomplishing the course God has set before you. And the joy, the joy as you look forward to hearing those words from Christ, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of my rest. I hope that you understand what joy that is. To know as you serve the Lord, as you look away from all the things the world tells you you should be looking at, and you focus your eyes on Christ, that someday, someday, you'll stand before the Lord. And he will give you the crown of life, the crown of righteousness. And you will praise God My dear sister Dixie always says, that'll be after the first thousand years. The first thousand years, I'll be like this before the Lord. Then maybe on the thousandth and one year, I'll I'll look up. And I'll take that crown off and I'll lay it at the master's feet. Because I couldn't have had that crown without him. Point number one, we run with endurance when we focus on Jesus himself. We run with endurance when we focus on Jesus' joy. Here's the third point. We run with endurance when we focus on Jesus' example. Notice the exhortation that comes in verse 3. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Here's the paraphrase. When you get weary... In your marathon race, beloved, when your faith is tested beyond what you think you can bear, when you think God has turned his back on you, when you think that you can't get out of this mess you're in or that you'll never get over the hump or that no one in all the universe has never endured what you have endured, will you do me a favor and just go to the Bible and read these verses right here? Will you just remind yourself of what Christ endured for you? There's a story of an atheist who lost his son. When the local pastor came to visit, he yelled at him and said, Where was your God when my son suffered and died? And the pastor, in a flash of wisdom, calmly replied, He was in the same place that he was when his own son suffered and died. That word consider means to give deep thought, deep deep meditation to. Notice the contrast in verse 2, right? We're to look away from anything other than Jesus. Verse 3, and then consider him. Not just think about Jesus, but meditate on him and his word. Meditate in the biblical sense. means not emptying yourself, but filling yourself 
with God's word, filling yourself. We're told to look intently to Jesus as our example. In the battle of the Christian life, the believer is to constantly be considering Christ, giving deep thought to his sufferings for the Christian. Jesus Christ was mocked and slandered and beaten and spat upon and accused of being demon-possessed, nailed to a cross. And he endured all that suffering, my friends, all of that, that he might finish his race and provide salvation for God's people. The one without sin became sin. You see, our sufferings, no matter what we're going through, no matter how long they persist, how do they compare to the sufferings of Christ? That's not to diminish your suffering, my friends. That's not what I'm saying. Hear me, hear me closely. It's to remind you that you have one who has suffered, who understands what betrayal is, who understands when people sin against you. And when you go before his throne of grace and you receive mercy and find grace in your time of need, you know that he knows what it feels like. And he knows exactly what you need. Notice also that phrase, grow weary and lose heart. Again, I said last week, that's kind of sports language for the ancient world of the runner, who would often be exhausted and collapse. Thus, the way for the Christian to avoid such a spiritual collapse was to consider him, that is to carefully think about and fill our minds with Christ and the endurance of, of the opposition that he faced with Caiaphas and Herod and Pontius Pilate and his own people whom he came to save. In many trials of life, if the Christian is not running the Christian race by focusing on Christ, there'll be a tendency for us to get discouraged and to give up. When trials and suffering come, we tend to get discouraged and then quit. We must remember that the Christian life, hear me closely, was never intended to be easy. It never was. It's a heresy to teach that when you come to faith that Jesus will take care of all your money problems and all your physical problems and all your relationship problems. And He never promised that. But he did promise that he would be with you through it all and that he would give you the strength to get through it in a way that would bring him honor and glory and conform you more and more to the image of his son. My friends, since Christ's race was rough, so will ours. Is the servant greater than the master? No. Pain hurts. It's hard to stand up against hostility. It's rough when people sin against you. But it's helpful for us to remember that they were hostile to Christ first. 
And when you go to him, you go to someone who's been there and done that. And you go to someone who understands. Because in Jesus, we have an example to follow, which cannot be surpassed. For he too patiently endured the opposition of sinful men, even his own disciples, my friends. But he's also able to impart his own spirit of steadiness to those who trust him so that they will not grow weary and lose heart. The author has exhorted us to keep our eyes on Jesus, to fill our minds with his word, to yield to his spirit's leading. My friends, God has given you all kinds of provision to finish this race. It's not just his word, which is in and of itself enough. But then we also have his example. And then we also have his spirit to guide and lead and correct and direct and encourage. And then we have the provision of the body of Christ who come alongside and encourage you and exhort you and edify you. They build you up. And then we have those individuals that God places in your life to speak truth into your life. You're not alone in your suffering. You're only alone if you take your eyes off Christ. Beloved, don't miss the wisdom here in this passage. He's not saying know about Jesus. He's saying be consumed with Christ. Be totally absorbed with Jesus. And that requires turning away from those things that distract us and the, and the positive act of consciously focusing and meditating on Jesus. And that's why we need to remind ourselves of the gospel every day. I have a little book called The Gospel Primer by Milton Vincent. That's part of my daily devotions. Pastor Ben always gives me a hard time. He says, you still in that devotion? And it's been like, you know, four years, Pastor. What, what in the world? But what I like about this gospel primer is that every day there's a reminder of what Christ did for me in the gospels. And every day, every morning, when I get done with my Bible reading, I read the gospel primer for that day. Matter of fact, if you've ever done any counseling with me at all or discipleship, at some point in time you will have that book in your hands. Pretty much a guarantee. Because we all need to be reminded of the gospel, my friends, every day. That's how we armor up to go face the world. That's how we get our mind and our hearts right to go face this world. So we need to turn away from those things that distract us. We need to read and reread in the gospels. And that's why our worship must be all about Christ. No fog shows, no laser lights. All about Jesus. That's why he must be the measure of all things. My friends, if you're weary in this marathon today, if you're weary in this race, maybe we need to cast off some encumbrances, some weight that's slowing us down. Maybe we need to get rid of a besetting sin that's enslaving us. Perhaps you're grumbling about the course that God has set for you. 
And you look at others who were putting foreign armies to flight and receiving back their dead by resurrection, and you're wandering around the deserts and the mountains and the caves and the holes in the ground and thinking, why, why me, Lord? Why that my life and this guy over here? You think it's just not fair? Might I lovingly remind you to submit to the sovereign hand of God who has chosen that race for you. To conform you more and more to the image of his son and to bring him glory. Perhaps you need to focus on Jesus and the joy of receiving that crown of righteousness that he has promised to all who finish the course. 2 Timothy 4. My friends, if you're here today and you are, don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can't run the race if you're never in the race. Perhaps you're here today and you've never begun the race. You're not saved. You've never believed in Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And the starting line for you in the race is for you to recognize that you are sinful before God and separated from him and currently under his wrath. You begin the race when you turn to Jesus Christ and receive him as the one who died for your sins and the one who is Lord over your life. Christ alone can save you. He alone can put you in this race. You must run Run to Christ. Run to him. And watch him with open arms receive you. If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, won't you run to him this morning? I beg you. Christian, you must never give up in your Christian race. Never. Even though you may feel at times like just chucking it all. Hang in there. Hang on. Don't quit. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Focus on Christ. Be a good Christian runner. Run for the finish line with all the strength that is within you from Christ. A distance runner, as he comes towards the finish line, has aching muscles and shaky legs and protruding veins and a grimacing facial expression, but he finishes the race by keeping his eye on the prize. My friends, persevere in your Christian race. Learn to shed all those encumbrances and sins that you might endure and finish the race. And in your race, you may have your stride broken now and then. You may stumble. You may fall. But get up and keep running. It is essential that you finish this race. All of God's children will finish this race. All of God's true children will finish this race. Some will finish first. Others will finish last. But... All of God's true children will finish. It's very important you finish your Christian race because it has eternal consequences. 
It was important that you began the race when you trusted in Christ. It's important that you finish the race. How do you do that? You run with endurance and you focus on Jesus himself. You run with endurance when you focus on Jesus and the joy that was set before him. You run with endurance when you focus on the perfect example Christ gave for us. My friends, finish that message, would you? In your hearts and your minds today. You meditate on that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again. As, Lord, I know many in this flock here today, Lord, are suffering. Some have been suffering for quite some time. Some, Lord, are at the beginning of that suffering. Some have had trials. All have had trials, Lord. But, Father, your word here is a reminder to us that the way that we finish the race well, the way that we finish with endurance, the is that we focus it on you and you alone. And that we cling to your word and yield to your spirit and seek guidance in everything that we do through you. Lord, thank you for your wonderful example. Thank you, Lord, for the incarnation. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for your spirit. But, Lord, most of all, thank you for going to the cross for us. That you, without sin, would become sin so that we might become Christ, we might become righteousness in Christ. Other words, don't really even express what you've done for us. May we live this life, Lord, in a way that glorifies you. You've given us every tool we need, every provision we need to do it, Lord. We must just focus on you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.